Hello and welcome everybody to the I Did Rod podcast, Tales from the Trail. We are here with uh, Jeff Dieter and Katie Joe at Black Spruce Kennels, Dog Sledding Kennels. And we're going to talk to them about uh, their unique situation this summer uh, is a little bit different with our, you know, COVID-19 situation. They have to do things a little bit differently and they're kind of asking some help from the community to come out um, and we'll have them talk about that. So uh, welcome, Jeff and Katie Joe. Hello. Hi, thanks. Yep, thanks for uh, talking with me today. I'm going to ask you a little bit about what's different this year. You have your setup here uh, just outside of Fairbanks. You have a kennel. You usually do, you know, tours in the summer. Uh, we have this whole COVID situation going on. and But you have some puppies that also need to be socialized. And with no tours, I guess, really, tourists coming up, it's a little bit challenging. Yeah, I think for us, of course, tourism has been, you know, the biggest um, hit to our business with the COVID pandemic. Um, And along with that, the socialization that comes for our dogs in this off season um, and our puppies, as you said, in particular. Um, So we are having some people um, volunteer to to come and spend time with our dogs, which is great. And um, we're slowly starting to get some interest in tours um, from locals in the state um, and then people that are willing to travel to Alaska um, from outside the lower 48 um, who are willing to take a COVID test, um, wait for the results, and then travel into the state, which our governor has recently um, allowed through the, the new state travel mandate. Yeah, that's the current situation, the current state mandate is that requirement of the COVID test. Um, we're not requiring that here necessarily. Um, our tours are really small group, they're outside, um, so we can easily keep people safe um, and socially distant, we feel like. Um, But yeah, it's just important in general that our dogs, all of them, puppies and adults, you know, stay busy throughout the summer just because there's not snow on the ground doesn't mean that they don't need to stay active and engaged. Um, But for our adults, it's easy enough for Jeff and I to keep them busy. We can hike with them. We can run with them. um, And they already kind of have their socialization baseline done you know they're they're friendly they're outgoing that's already sort of set in stone but for these puppies it's really important that they're seeing new people um and and very often you know puppies are just like little kids they change so quickly they can be really friendly and social one week and then if two weeks go past and they don't see anybody well now all of a sudden they've forgotten um to be friendly and to be brave um, and so it's really important that they're seeing people frequently. And so we're asking for um, volunteers and friends and family and people in the community to come up and spend time with our puppies. Yeah, that's uh, one of the main reasons I, I wanted to come by your uh, <laughs> dog sled place is to see the puppies. Uh, several mushers have you know posted on social media. They're litters for the summer. And they're all so cute. And who wouldn't want to come and see puppies? Yeah, it's pretty easy to get people to come. It hasn't been difficult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, me and my family just uh, traveled up to Fairbanks and uh, to do some visiting of family. So I uh, just saw your uh, social media posts. And people can follow you at on Instagram, I think, is the, yep. the big one. Instagram and Facebook, yep. To see, keep, a, keep updated with all the puppy news, yeah. I'm sure. You know, it was really interesting, though, how you uh, 
brought us through, our, the volunteers were out there, you kind of brought us through the steps of handling the puppies and, you know, what are the important things to think about, um, you know, sitting down at the first and keeping them in your lap and, you know, not being too pushy with the dogs and if they want to kind of go and, and do their thing, they go and do their thing. But it seems like there's kind of a process. Yeah, yeah, we want, there's um, certain things, you know, we want to achieve with our visitors interacting with our dogs. Um, but of course, we want to be sure that our puppies are able to sort of approach people in new situations at their own pace and making sure that um, they're not being forced into something that's going to make them uncomfortable. And that's, Yeah, we don't want to make it too scary. Yeah, yeah, and that's something, I mean, for the life of a sled dog, you know, that's sort of how our philosophy works from the very first days to the very last days is, you know, you kind of let the dog approach it at their own pace. And we make sure that as we're, you know, working with these puppies and socializing and then working with our young dogs and training, it's taking it um, at steps that are um, attainable for the dogs and making sure that we're not asking too much of them. Right. Setting them up for success is something that we constantly think about. How do we make every experience possible and doable? And uh, you were saying earlier that your your team is kind of known for being very social and very <laughs> friendly, and it's probably part of this process that you go with each oh, yeah. year. Yeah, yeah, 100%. it's definitely something we've had to work um, hard at. We we live actually, you know, fairly remote out here at our, our kennel, um, and as our tour business has grown, we've become more popular. We've been able to branch out into summer tours. That has really helped develop a social dog team. Um, but yeah, for our first few years, we had quite a few dogs that were pretty timid around large groups. They weren't very good at passing other dog teams, and that that was a struggle. Um, and so we've made extra effort to make sure that. Um, you know, over the last five years, all of our dogs have gotten a lot of socialization when they're young to make sure that as they approach a race like Iditarod, where there's thousands of fans and there's hundreds of people on the trail, that they're not overwhelmed in those situations. And they pull into checkpoints with volunteers and vets that are waiting and, and you know, dozens of kids that are excited to jump back and forth over the team if those dogs are ready for that and that they're going to be comfortable, um, you know, in a checkpoint with that many people. Yeah, yeah, we want the dogs to have a positive experience really from start to finish in the race and um, volunteers and fans are such a big part of the race that making sure the dogs are going to be good with that aspect is really important for their success and happiness. Yeah. And checking them. I mean, yeah. they're very used to being touched and their oh, yeah. paws. Yeah, yeah, vet checks are always really fun with our dogs because the dogs want to spend the whole time licking the volunteers and veterinarians and jumping on them and just want to get pet um and so it's I think it's sometimes hard for the vets to do their job because the dogs just want to get in there and get attention um not necessarily want to have their teeth looked at <laughs> well it probably makes it easier and and I, I you told us a little bit uh the volunteers and I about the differences of spending this time early on with the puppies opposed to some dogs that you didn't get that chance necessarily to spend so much time developing their social skills um, and those maybe the other dogs that didn't get that really extra attention didn't end up necessarily getting to be good race dogs maybe or maybe they were just not as interested or it, it can definitely um i mean there are plenty of race dogs i've had those dogs throughout the years that are timid around new people and are still exceptional athletes on the trail mm -hmm. um so it, it won't necessarily directly affect performance it can just affect your overall enjoyment of spending time with those dogs with new people and the ease of 
the time in checkpoints is a big thing that I think about, like how easily are we going to be able to get to our parking spot? How easily are we going to be able to pull away from our parking spot? Um, I'm going to have a very difficult time if I have lead dogs that are very timid around people to follow a new person to a parking spot. Um, that's going to be, a, you know, a okay. challenge. That's going to be five minutes that we spend getting parked um, if the dogs are shy as opposed to, you know, 10 seconds if the dogs are very social and friendly and willing to follow someone they don't know and are very trusting. Um, and I feel like that's made the whole checkpoint routine for our team very easy. We've been able to pull in and out of checkpoints and um, and and not really have to struggle at all with getting the dogs to an exact parking spot. They're very comfortable. Yeah, and I feel like our dogs will actually sleep in checkpoints as well because they see people and that's fine. It doesn't mean anything to them or really bother them. If you had a shy dog, a shy dog team trying to sleep in a checkpoint, I imagine that, you know, to some degree, they're not going to sleep as well, especially in those first few checkpoints, if they're not comfortable having people around. So I could see where having a shy dog or a shy dog team could affect your overall performance in the race. It certainly can't hurt to have a friendly dog team. Yeah, no, it, it can't hurt. You can definitely do things to, to mitigate the, um, involvement that your dog team has with with people if you know if you do have a, a shy group of dogs or a group of dogs that are just from an area that is not you know known for having a lot of people you can you can try and do things to set your dogs up for success but if you have a well-rounded group of dogs it just makes life easier yeah mm-hmm. and it probably you want the race to still be fun too and not exactly. all work and i bet right. it's a lot <laughs> yeah, i don't no, know if it's easier one less, one less thing to think about yeah, you know one if your less dogs worry. are friendly it's yeah one less worry Yep. Yeah, I can trust that the vets can go up and down the team and I don't have to worry about any of the dogs being um, put in an uncomfortable position because of it. And they're great. Um, your dogs earlier, uh, we had a few volunteers out. You know, you're going to have kind of a regular schedule for them to yep. socialize. Yep, yeah. That's great. So let's talk about uh, this year on the trail. Uh, it was 16th place, That's right. I think, as I can remember. Yep. Um, any, anything stand out in particular out of all the crazy things that happened this year? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, um, of course, like having COVID as a part of the race was something that did not necessarily affect the first half of Iditarod, um, but was something that stood out to all of us as mushers as we got closer and closer to the finish line. I actually had the um, funny experience of um, intercepting a text that was meant to be sent to my mother from my <laughs> wife, but was sent to the wrong number and reached my um, in-reach satellite phone instead. Um, and so I got a message about the fact that the Nome banquet was going to be canceled and that people weren't flying into Nome and that the NCAA, <laughs> NCAA was canceled. Um, I received all this information while at a camp about 50 miles before Ruby. Um, and so that sort of affected... Um, my outlook on the finish of the race. It, of course, didn't necessarily affect anything in that moment. I just took it all in stride, but it was pretty entertaining news to reach while out in the wilderness. Well, yeah, it was pretty funny. I think my exact words were something like, I'm not going to tell Jeff about the banquet. I want him to just focus on the race and not think about the finish or something like that. Yeah, those were the words. Yeah, so he oh. writes back to me and he's like, what aren't you going to tell me about the banquet? And I was like, oh, Cats out of the bag. Yeah, yeah, crap. So then I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just tell you all of the things. You know, NCAA is canceled. Broadway is dark. Um, I'm trying to remember sort of all the things that seemed like they all kind of happened at once. And um, I'm sure it was 
interesting for him to process. But at the same time, my message to him was like, you are lucky to be out there. Like the world is going crazy. People are scared. People are sad. Um, you're about to come back into a world that is not the same world that you left. So just like appreciate your time out there with your dogs. And I know you're trying to be competitive, but don't hurry too much. You know, it's not, it's not that great out here right now. Yeah. And that was good advice. And so you just try and do what mushers always do, which is just focus on the dogs in front of you and your time on the trail. Um, and so actually the second half of Iditarod was a blast for me personally. I had a really great time. The dog team really came together and um it yeah things just worked out really well in the second half of the race and we got to enjoy our time on the trail and have some pretty excellent weather to mush through too some snowstorms and some um some wind and then some just beautiful weather as well so I really got to enjoy the second half of the race and then finishing in Nome was definitely an interesting experience there was maybe 10 people at the finish line and the town was dark um so that was that was different you felt like you were arriving into an apocalyptic world um but we made it through and things are slowly turning around. Yeah, I mean, we certainly missed everybody being there at the finish line and we're really looking forward to um, to 21. And Yeah, hopefully having um, a decent crowd at the finish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone was missed for sure. Well, I guess um, all probably sled races are going to be a little bit different maybe this year. Uh, I don't know, we are still on and, and registration is now open for our uh, mushers. But surely, surely different. I mean, uh, news of Yukon Quest having some issues, I'm sure, uh, kind of sends ripples through, through Musher's mind. Yeah, yeah, it's really unfortunate for them. It seems like the problems that they're having aren't necessarily COVID-related. It sort of seemed like they were a long time coming, um, maybe some long-term mismanagement there, but this was certainly a bad year to have it come to a head because none of us, I don't think, feel like we have extra money to um, Yeah, I think fundraising and sponsorship yeah. right now um, for any dog races is tough to come by um, in this economic climate. And, and for sure for the Quest, this is a really this is bad timing to face bankruptcy. Um, that race is looking at doing some things um, for this coming year, possibly running... Uh, a Canadian race, a 500 mile race, and then a Alaskan 500 mile race and having basically two separate Yukon Quest 500 mile races, which would be qualifiers for Iditarod mm -hmm. and then the Yukon Quest 1000, which they plan on running in 2022. Um, so they're, they're looking at doing some things for the future. Um, but right now the biggest hurdle is just raising enough money to keep the doors open on the Alaskan side. Um, an interesting thing with the Yukon Quest is they actually have two different organizing boards um, and that is quite challenging. There's a Canadian board and an Alaskan mm. board, and it's actually two separate races that come together to put on the one event. And that, that is challenging. So the Canadian side is actually in decent standing financially um, and, and looks like they will continue. The Alaskan side is the one that is really struggling. I don't know what happens if the Alaskan side um, does in fact go bankrupt and close its doors. Does the Canadian side step in and still run a thousand mile race into Alaska or do they change it to be exclusively a Canadian race? I don't know. Now you haven't, you haven't run the quest. Has Katie Joe run? No, neither of us have, have run the quest. We've done a little bit of volunteering with the race. Um, in 2016, we were, um, at mile 101 and helped put up that checkpoint, um, and get teams parked there and, um, kind of headed up the organizing of that checkpoint. Um, and got an inside look at the race as it was starting out. It was a Fairbank start that year. 
Um, I signed up for it in 2017 with our yearling dog team at the time. Um, and as the race got closer and I really started looking into logistics, realized that it was just going to be um, an unreasonable race for um, an inexperienced green dog team. At least by our accounting, um, sure. every kennel is going to do what they think is right for their dogs. But um, we tend to take it pretty easy on our young dogs. You know, nowadays we don't even have dogs run their first Iditarod until they're at least two yeah, and that's kind of become the, the norm. There are still yearlings that do run Iditarod, but it's a month later, um, which means a little bit more time to kind of prepare for the race. And with the amount of checkpoints over the Iditarod Trail, um, 22 as opposed to 9 that you have in the Yukon Quest, there's just a lot more options for refueling, um, which means running with a lighter sled, um, and a lot more options for taking breaks along the trail, um, even if they're unplanned breaks, you know, you maybe thought of running um, straight through from Nikolai to Takatna to do your 24. Well, if things aren't looking good or your team's a little on the tired side, you can stop in McGrath um, and kind of adjust. And you don't have a lot of flexibility like that necessarily in the Yukon Quest. You kind of have to go, you have to utilize the, the few checkpoints that are out there um, because, it, you know, you need to refuel your, your team. Yeah. And also, you know, fewer options for dropping a dog. If you have a dog that is struggling, you know, maybe they are a, a little young or immature, um, having more checkpoints is nicer for being able to, um, return a dog if you feel like that's the best thing for them. Right, right, exactly. In the Yukon Quest, I think you have only 11 or 12 places that you can re return a dog. And, um, so that means potentially hauling a dog for over a hundred miles, which can be quite a challenge. Yes, for you and the dog and the whole team mm -hmm. and just in general, it's not ideal. <laughs> have you guys run a race to at the same time? Yeah, we have. The first race that I ever did was the Kinnick 200, and that was in 2017. 2018. Is that right? 18. Um, we did that together. Um, our kennel was smaller at the time, so instead of us each taking the maximum number of 12 dogs, um, we each took eight, which was really, really fun. Um, and we just, yeah, did it together like a, a training run, sort of. We took four-hour rests. Um, that was my first race experience and it was a very easy trail that year it mostly was just on the river the whole time um and it was good since then I don't think we've done a race together since then we've stopped training together too we like to kind of do things separately I don't like Jeff looking over my shoulder I don't need that anymore <laughs> we do a lot of hooking up and then yeah just meeting out on the trail <laughs> Have you run that? I did run. I'm sorry. Not yet. No. Okay. No, no. I'm hoping in 2022. Okay. Um, I would have been qualified this year if I had been able to run the Kobuk 440. Um, but with the Kobuk being canceled because of COVID, mm -hmm. that's kind of pushed everything back, um, which is totally fine. I don't think that we would have had enough dogs um, for us to each run this coming year in 21 anyway. So 22 is kind of the first year that our kennel will be big enough for us to each have a team. Um, and I don't think that we plan on running together in 22. I'm going to hopefully have a really nice, easy rookie experience. Um, and Jeff will continue to be competitive. And um, But that's our plan right now. It's, 22 seems like a lifetime from now so we'll see yeah especially <laughs> with all the changes everybody's going through right yeah. now it's kind of hard to plan that far in advance right, right. but that would be very interesting to see both of you guys yeah. running yeah. together yeah that's all that idea. has been our plan yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so you do have to plan i mean it takes yes. years to yes yeah it's hard you know so much of dog mushing is being patient and not looking so far down the trail um taking it one run at a time um 
But at the same time, you have to acknowledge that the future is there. Um, and so if, you know, you think like we think that we each want to have a team in Iditarod someday, that requires actually years of planning. Um, you know, we have to have the puppies. I have to do the qualifiers. Our dogs have to have the training to be ready to go. Um, we also have to think about our business and how we continue to staff our business if we're both on the trail. Um, who runs things, you know, when we're both gone. Um, so there's a lot of planning and logistics that goes into it. And you probably obviously researched, you know, which races you do, which races you don't do, you pick and choose, how many races do you do a year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think especially for me, um, you have your qualifiers, but they're... Um, it's just a mileage number that's attached to those qualifiers. You know, it's what two, 300 mile races and a 200 mile race. Yeah. Well, not all races are created equal. You know, some 300 mile races are more difficult than others. Um, I did the copper basin this year. It was a really difficult year this year because of the cold. Um, so I was really, really happy with my finish. Um, and just felt like such a better musher when I finished it. Um, because I knew that it was difficult. And so I got a lot out of it psychologically. Um, and that was really important to me. You know, no one is requiring that I specifically run the Copper Basin to qualify. Um, but I knew that it was a good idea. It was what I needed. Um, and so, yeah, we're definitely thinking about which races are valuable. Um, not just trying to get a certain number of miles, but also thinking about, okay, this particular race is going to be a good qualifier as opposed to this one that, you know, is maybe like a little bit easier and isn't maybe going to be as good of a qualifier. And then Alaska has an incredible amount of land and there aren't really that many dog races. Um, no. So we end up just choosing the ones that work out, that don't overlap and that mm -hmm. we're able to get to. Um, there's a few races like the Kobuk 440 and the Kuskokwim 300 that are remote. Um, you have to fly out to those races. And that, of course, involves a lot more logistical planning um, and a, a bit more money um, to, to get to the start line. Um, now, with both of those races, typically if you make it there, um, you do get your money back. The money you put in, you do um, make back if you finish the race, which is pretty nice. They have good prize money involved with both of those races, which does incentivize mushers to travel um, and to take part in, in the community event that is that race, um, which is really cool. But it it is... Um, it is more headache to think about getting out there and it takes more time. And so that's, what's kind of kept us away from some of those remote races until now. Um, we do have a dog team that is becoming more competitive and is stronger, um, and does make the travel potentially more worth it, um, for going out there for more than just the experience of the race. But yeah. that's typically the, the reason for going is for the race experience. Right. It is hard with the winter business though, you know, with having a tour business that runs in the winter, that adds a whole other level of, logistical challenge that we have to think about you know so if you think about going to a 300 mile race it's only gonna you know take four or five days of your time as opposed to going to a 300 mile race it's gonna take you know seven or eight days of your time because there's flights and travel to and from anchorage and um you know things like that it's there's a difference between being gone for five days and being gone for eight days yeah absolutely so who watches i mean when you're doing a race in the winter you have your business do you close down? Do you have someone else come in? And No, in the past, we've been fortunate enough to have guides that work for us and then um, friends and family that will watch our dogs while we're on the trail. Um, and some of those people also work for us. Um, and some people are just generous enough to accept financial um, payment 
to come out watch our kennel. <laughs> <laughs> we, we pay people to come watch the dogs. Yeah, yeah. It's we've kind of done something different every year. Um, seasonal work is is hard. Um, I think if we could operate with a staff year round, um, that would make things easier in some ways. But we're just not as busy in summer. Um, we can't justify having so many people on on payroll and then obviously this year is going to be like really different mm -hmm. I mean who knows what's going to happen this year we're not even sure if we're going to have a handler um, and if we do have a handler what we're actually going to be able to provide for them other than a place to stay and just of course the awesome like experience of learning how to to dog mush but um that gets old, believe it or not. You know, people get really excited about learning how to run sled dogs and then they get into like November. I will say, I will say that it's really all fun and games until like late November. Yeah. And then Fairbanks has four hours of daylight and it's on Cold. average 30 below. And all of a sudden it's not as much fun. Yeah. Now we enjoy it. Yeah. But, you know, you really have to be committed to enjoy it. Yeah. So, um... We've always tried to pay our handlers. Having them run tours has been super helpful for, um, you know, hiring people that actually can make money at the same time that they're running dogs. Um, but we don't know what the tour, we have no idea at all what the tour scene is going to look like this winter. So um, it's very stressful, but. Yeah, at this point, we have a good friend who lives in Fairbanks who's been involved with our kennel since we started. Um, and she comes out and um and watches everything while we're gone and understands how our off-grid house works and how hauling water works um and how all of our you know she knows our dogs and she knows how our kennel runs um and so we can trust her to just take care of things while we're gone um and th that has worked out pretty well over the last few years yeah and hopefully she keeps keeps doing that <laughs> <laughs> so you probably can't just put an ad in the paper saying you get paid in puppy hugs no <laughs> yeah you can't you can't it's like you know it's like uh, hiring a babysitter or a yeah. nanny you know mm -hmm. as someone to take care of your most precious thing in the world so um well if you have i mean dogs it's really your your children yep i mean yep yeah fur babies yep yeah and then you add the business stuff on top of that if jeff and i are racing or one of us is racing and one of us is handling we need to have someone who can also answer the phone and respond to emails and make sure that the tour day is running like it's supposed to run um so it's a hard position to just like step into and then our house is off-grid um so you have to manage our battery bank um run the generator haul water from town um there's a few things involved with just housekeeping that are not straightforward yeah i did see your um solar, solar panels, panels. Yeah. so you're totally off -grid. yeah this whole our whole area is 100 percent off-grid mm -hmm. um so yeah all the power that we make is um, or all the power that we use we bake which adds another thing to oh, on yes. top of just the dog <laughs> part yes <laughs> and yeah. business part yeah i know the dogs are actually one of the easier parts of our lifestyle mm -hmm. yeah well i imagine other uh, kennels will probably be in the same position as far as the business standpoint yeah. um i i imagine some aren't running a business also and running you know i think some some mushers are in that situation uh they do other things yeah and in some ways i mean i guess we're kind of lucky that we do operate year round because if this summer is a bust um maybe things will start to come around in the winter um we have some friends that just do summer tourism mm -hmm. and that's got to be a, an extremely hard position because you know they need to operate they need to function for an entire year 
before mm-hmm. they have an opportunity to see things come back around. You know, it's going to be June of 21 before they see any sort of recovery. Um, you know, we have friends who typically operate businesses in um, Juno or um, Skagway, and they didn't even go to work this summer. Mm. Um, so that's a full year of, of waiting for them, um, where hopefully we can start to see some recovery this fall, maybe, um, or at least this winter. Hopefully things will start coming back around. Yeah. It's, it's definitely going to be interesting. I know it's interesting for us, Iditarod, although, I mean, it's been months since the race is over, but we're still busy behind the scenes, yeah. although our, yeah. uh, we're just now opening a few days a week at this point, but still, there's no tour buses, you know, right. travel in-state. We're really mostly tourist business. I mean, there's some locals, sure, and I, I imagine some locals come to your business and the mushing business. Yeah, I think that summer we're going to get a lot of um, people who are visiting family. So we've got Isleson Air Force Base here and we've got Fort Wainwright. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually a bunch of sh- uh, soldiers that are coming home right now. Um, they're coming home now. They're coming home in July. Um, and I know their families are going to want to come up here and see them. Um, and so I've heard from many families already actually who are planning to come up um, as a family um, to visit us. So That'll be, that'll definitely be cool. But yeah, anybody who is coming affiliated with a cruise ship, that's not happening. No. Yeah. And I know Princess Tours, I think, is just done. They're not, they're not doing anything, I, I don't think, no. yeah, this no, they, year they at all. They shut down for nope. Alaska-wide. Alaska <laughs> no. Yes, we, uh, my family just drew, drove up from Wasilla, so we went through Denali, you know, everything's pretty quiet, the roads are all empty, which is very odd. For us as locals, you know, it's usually craziness on the highway, mm-hmm. uh, especially driving through Denali, but no, nope, yeah. not this year. Uh, all kinds of different things. And they've opened up part of the Denali to drive in past where people usually can go. So Right, which is cool. You know, I think actually like if you yeah. are an Alaskan and you are traveling in the state this summer, there's going to be maybe some kind of neat opportunities um, to do some things that maybe we don't normally get to do, like yeah. driving deeper into the park yeah. um, and enjoying spaces that, you know, typically we're sharing with tens of thousands of people, you know, this year we'll maybe, you know, get it a little more to ourselves. So it's, there's obviously financial drawbacks to dealing with this coronavirus, but there's some kind of like, there'll be some cool parts of it too. Some silver linings if we can find them. Yeah. Yeah, staycation situation, you know, plan your staycation in Alaska, go out, support your local businesses, they're going to, any really local business is going to be hurting, I know all of them are going to be, you know, they're they're thinking outside the box right now, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're getting creative, I think, Um, but we're all looking forward to next year, uh, next year's race, um, did you hit, I was going to ask, if you did hit that part of the trail, trail where it was overwatered, did you get that? I know many did, but did you get lucky and not hit no, that part? No, I, I was far enough in front of that storm um, to not have that weather system hit until I was on my way into Nome. Yeah, so I, I was I, about a day and a half in front of it. I think what happened was all those places where people were getting wet, that was all, what, like storm surge, right? Mm-hmm. So there was this big storm that blew in from the Bering Sea. And brought in, I think, just pretty high seas that yeah, sort high, of saturated high that, that coastline. Yeah. yeah, and so there ended up being a lot of water under the mm-hmm. snow um, as a result of that storm. But yeah, yeah, you luckily missed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was 
fortunate there and just um, a lot of that just had to do with the schedule that we were running. Of course, I couldn't like see that storm coming sure. and increase speed. Like that was not a thing. I just happened to be on a fast enough schedule um, that I didn't run any risk of, of getting involved with that, which was fortunate, lucky, because uh, it sounded in, pretty wild. Yeah. And you've been in four. I did. This was is this my your fourth. fourth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is my fourth. And how was the weather compared? I mean, what do you compare when you do, you've done four? I think that anymore, you don't really look at any sort of standard when it comes to weather of in March. Um, it used to be that with Iditarod, you could expect pretty warm weather for the first couple of days working your way over the Alaska range. You could hit the interior, count on cold, hit the coast, count on wind. Um, anymore, you just don't know. Um, so we had actually some pretty cold weather going through the Alaska range this year. I know as I was um, Summiting Rainy Pass, it was 15 below on my thermometer, was blowing about 40 miles an hour. Um, and that was one of the colder spots on the race. Um, that was chilly. And then as we dropped down into the interior um, and ran to Nikolai and then uh, Nikolai over to McGrath, it got down to 52 below on a couple creeks. Um, but no wind, luckily. So that's just the cold you can deal with. Um, the wind added to that cold gets a little bit unpleasant. Um, by the time we hit the Yukon River, it was all the way up to 30, and there were points on the coast it was 48 above on the way to Shack Tulik. Um, so you have a 100-degree temperature difference there from, you know, in a five-day period. Um, so you just can't really plan for the weather. We basically send out a food drop budgeting anywhere from 50 below to 40 above, and we kind of hope that it's zero. That's, that's the ideal temperature. If it's zero um, from start to finish, that'd be perfect. But that never seems to happen, um, especially with climate change. We're just getting such erratic weather along the coastline in the springtime, especially, um, that we just, yeah, you just don't know. So it makes it exciting. I like bad weather. So it's, you know, you just kind of take it one step at a time. And um, we have dogs that are really good in wind because we get a lot of it here in this part of Fairbanks that we train in. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just try and be conservative at the beginning of the race, knowing recently that the end of the race is probably going to be tough. There's going to be much warmer weather, which is slower for the dogs, slower going. Um, and, and there's always wind on the coast. That, that does seem to be pretty consistent. And we had a bunch of snow in the beginning. And for a few years, we didn't really get a whole lot of snow. Yeah, the yeah, snow was so. a huge concern this year. Um, we had in the race meeting, there was talk of, you know, moose that were going to be attacking the dog teams. And, and we were going to be literally strapping our snowshoes to our feet and putting in a trail. Um, I know that I altered my schedule a little bit to take advantage of some of the early checkpoints because parking alongside the trail was going to be non-existent from what we heard. It ended up being beautiful. We had an awesome trail through the Alaska Range. The The trail crew did a great job, and then there was traffic from snow machines. Um, so really, it was a pretty nice trail, considering the worries that we put into analyzing the beginning of the race. Um, yeah, all that. We started out in two feet of snow, I guess. So the start of the race was a complete slog. Right off the start line, we were doing 6.8 miles an hour. So Ooh, that was, that yeah. was yeah. definitely tough. Um, that was a big hurdle for everyone to get over. Um, and I know for me, I was the dead, I was the very last team into Yetna. So a mile 34, I was in the last position. Um, I got passed by 15 teams in the first 25 miles. And then I camped before Yetna was the only team to do that this year. Um, and I definitely was scratching my head wondering if I was doing the right thing. And I was not sure that I had made the right decision or that I was going to be competitive. And I really spent a lot of time second guessing my decisions for the first couple hundred miles of the race. And I think I was still in like 35th position in Nikolai and um, not where I wanted to be in the race field and also didn't have a team that seemed like they were 
really able to do much more than what we were doing at the time. They, they just they weren't they were being quite finicky with their food, and um, I had some struggles at the beginning of the race. Um, but in the end, the conservative pace that I ended up taking with the team at the beginning really worked out in the end, and so. I felt good by the time I hit the finish line. It took a good 700 miles to feel good. <laughs> well, I think you I think you did okay considering all of the weather that happened. You just happened to, I think you did pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you, no, I felt good about finished, it in the end. You I got there. Finishing is always a You missed number some one of the weather at the end. It looked the same Yeah. Like. Yeah. That was, of it's that was a worry luck. off of my mind for sure. Yeah. When I saw what the weather was going to do. And I saw that he was going to come in right before it happened. That was really, really, really nice to have him in and have the dogs in and everyone to just be safe and sound and cozy. And that was good. Yeah. I didn't spend 36 hours in Elam. So that was, nope, uh, that wasn't part of that. <laughs> a good thing. I mean, I'm sure they were having fun and, you know, oh, being there yeah. with each other. <laughs> At least they were in they a checkpoint. They're in a checkpoint. Yes. So. In a checkpoint. They had, yeah. you know, yeah. a good experience, I think. Yeah. <laughs> no, and those end, teams all made together. it. So, yeah, it was, it was good. But, um, yeah, I was happy to be watching that experience yeah. from Nome. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And happy to have you in. Well, thanks again for having us here and uh, doing our interview for the podcast. Everyone, I'm sure, is just interested to hear from you, too. And we're looking forward to uh, having you both in the race. Excellent. Great. Yeah. Soon. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. Thanks.